You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we speak with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson. Today, we're going to speak about the explosion in cyber attacks and what it will take to defend against them. And listeners of this podcast know by now that every organization, even the most sophisticated intelligence agencies, are vulnerable to cyber intrusion. The solution, according to today's guest, is a collective approach to threat detection, an approach that focuses on sharing intelligence across the public and private sectors. I'm thrilled that joining me today is former National Security Agency head, Keith Alexander. A four-star Army general, Jelena Alexander led the NSA from 2005 to 2014, longer than any other sitting director. He was also the first commander of the U.S. Cyber Command, which he led from 2010 to 2014. General Alexander now heads his own cybersecurity firm that is building a solution for protecting enterprise networks. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Anne. It's an honor to be here. We're we're recording this podcast at a really interesting time when we're in the midst of a global pandemic and people are, you know, working from home and Talk to me about any change you've seen in folks you just talk to on a regular basis about how they're adapting to this entire working from home environment. Well, that's a great question, Ian. When you think about the change in technology over the last decade, a decade ago, working from home would have been extremely hard. We didn't have all the streaming video. We didn't have all the capabilities that we have today. Think about Zoom, uh, Google uh, Hangouts, all these streaming media is a result of the 4G technology and everything that's gone on over the last decade. So we have actually um, well prepared to do this. Now, the interesting part, it's hard. It's hard for everybody to be incarcerated at home. Uh, I've been here for over four weeks. Who would have believed six months ago we'd be incarcerated at home for months at a time? Having said that, it's for the greater good. I think companies like mine can actually continue operations in cyberspace, uh, whether we're together in the office or we're doing it collectively from home. The big change, we need to make sure that our networks are secure. We use VPN technology. We use uh, multi-factor authentication, everything that you would expect in a company. But we can do this. Yeah, I, I I think that's all really valid. We actually have been talking a lot about that we think in some aspects, work is going to change permanently. There will be probably more reticence of people traveling. They're still, they're going to travel, but is there more scrutiny on it, right? Are there jobs that truly could be done from a, in a more remote standpoint, even permanently, or maybe mostly permanently? And that is going to drive technology, right? Technology um, has to adapt to what workers need and security, of course, has to adapt to what workers need. So I think that I, you know, when we saw early is that folks were sending their workers home because they had to, they had to maintain business continuity and they had to comply. And, you know, for the greater good, they needed less people in the office and security was came, you know, a week or two later. We have to, I think, be earlier in that to enable people to know that when they need to send folks home, whether it's another, you know, hopefully not, but hopefully, you know, another pandemic, or whether it's some type of situation where you need to think about business continuity 
and your workers working remotely that we can put security on the front of it rather than on the back of it. That's yeah. my goal. Yeah, yeah. In fact, if you think about this, it's going to change forever because we've got to think about how you ensure if somebody's infected that they don't spread the disease, not just within a community, but internationally. The way this was spread, we didn't have a good way of tracking that. How do you get out in front of that? And what is the biotechnology that helps you get there from knowing that a person is immune and therefore virus-free to ensuring that they've been inoculated? How do we do that within a country and internationally? These are the issues that I think countries are going to face. And COVID-19 is the first of these that really puts that front and center. So, you know, it's interesting. We have passports. I suspect we're going to have uh, phone data that shows that we've had our inoculations and where we are in that in order to enter other countries. I think that's something in the not too distant future. So having kind of a passport for uh, your current virus state is going to be something other countries may start to demand. So we've got to get good at this. It's going to challenge our biotech community. It's going to challenge our networks. It's going to challenge our security. I think, but that's part of our future. You know, I know you've spent a lot of your career thinking about the balance between security and protecting society and privacy. So I'm curious on your point of view on how how you enable that, right? Um, and I'm not I'm not having I'm not putting a value judgment on whether it's the right thing, but how do you enable that and still protect privacy? So I think this is where actually transparency helps. Um, and the issue is how do you get the word out that you can actually do both? So it is uh, in collecting data, you can collect data needed, whether it's counterterrorism or cybersecurity, and still protect civil liberties and privacy. I think you can do both. The, the key part will be how do we do data on virus? How do we track people's location? And you can see in the media questions about how companies can help track who you've been in contact with to understand how this could spread to protect um, potentially innocent people. So this gets us to a new era on how we think about security and civil liberties and privacy. At the, at the, I think at the macro level, when we talk about civil liberties and privacy, it's really my communications, my thoughts, where I go. I want that protected. I also want to make sure my children, my grandchildren, my parents, my brothers and sisters, that they're protected too. So what do we as a nation uh, say we should do, especially if there's a coronavirus 20 or 21, that could be more lethal? We've got to think ahead of that. We've got to think now ahead of the game of what we're going to do on that. And that gets us into sharing data. As soon as you tar- start talking about sharing data, you immediately run into this privacy issue. My perspective, get the best lawyers from both sides. You know, get the ACLU folks in there, get the conservatives in there, and hash out a plan that comports with our Constitution that will protect our civil liberties and privacy and still ensure the security of the country. I think we can do both. It, it, it's interesting, and I'm going I'm to pivot a little, but I'm going to, and I'm going to still, um, I still want to talk about um, just a slight pivot, information sharing. 
I made the comment to some la someone last week that I've seen more collaboration, whether it's public-private sector, private-private sector, public-public sector. I've seen more sharing in the past four weeks than I've seen probably in my 20 years in cybersecurity. I'm curious, um, your point of view, and I, I think there's just this tremendous need for all of us to be as transparent and as open as we can um, against the cyber attackers. But I'm curious if you're seeing the same type of trend and what you're thinking um, right now about, you know, industry sharing and public sector and private sector sharing related specifically to cyber attacks. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a great question, Ann, because it's my belief we're in this together and we're all being attacked. <clears throat> I liken it to air traffic control. All these radars are tracking our flights and providing air traffic controllers with a great picture of where all the aircraft are so they don't bump into each other. We don't have an air traffic picture for cyber. It doesn't exist. Every company fights its own real-time battle, and we share information as we understand it, not as it's occurring. So in that regard, we are way out from where we need to be in protecting uh, companies, sectors, states, and our nation. We need to come up with a collective defense that makes that real time. I believe that's the future for our nation. That's the future for cybersecurity. And the way to do that is by bringing this data together and sharing not personally identifiable information, not the content of communications, but information about threats and anomalies such that we can work together for the common defense. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I was always asked when I went in, in front of Congress, have you read the journal? Have you read the Constitution? Yep, this one, pull it out. And you know, in the preamble, it says, we built this government for the common defense, but the government cannot defend that which they cannot see. If we were uh, defending against missiles, imagine trying to stop missiles without being able to see them, it wouldn't happen. We'd be in great, uh, great, uh, terrible consequences from that. Well, that's where we are in cyber. So we need to fix that. That's my belief. And I think that's technically doable. And you can protect civil liberties and privacy. Yeah, I don't disagree. And I, I like the analogy of the air traffic control map, because I think that makes it real for folks to understand what we're lacking. They're all kind of flying our planes around each other and crashing regularly at the moment, right? That's right. Um, and we just need to stop that. You know, another thing I want to talk to you about is that Accenture um, had an, has their annual report, and they've predicted that cybercrime will cost us, you know, $5.2 trillion um, in global value is at risk between 2019 and 2023. They talk about a lot of different types of threats, but I know you've mentioned that the theft of intellectual property is top of mind for you. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and also the things you could do or we could do to help um, avoid that type of theft? Yes, um, I do. Uh, I think our uh, loss of intellectual property, that's the greatest transfer of wealth in history. And from our perspective, whether it's in the defense industrial base, it's in our tech community, it's in any sector that we have, Adversaries are out to get our game plan, to steal our intellectual property, to understand what we're doing, to get ahead. It's a competition. And right now, because we can't see the networks, the advantage is to them. A persistent threat will get through. So you have to bring that visualization to life. 
and we have to protect our intellectual property. Uh, I think just our country alone, I've seen estimates that are north of 500 billion a year lost in intellectual property. Now, you know, I, I don't know how they measure that, but it's a lot. So step one, fix the security. Secure our intellectual property, secure our um, networks, secure our thoughts. And you know, that thunder behind me just emphasizes all of this. Um, yeah, I understand. I'm on the West Coast, um, obviously, but I understand uh, my home state of New Jersey and a lot of the East Coast is really having some terrible weather in the past couple of days. Yes. Not good. Can we talk just a little bit about you know, the NSA? It, the NSA is the world's largest intelligence agency. How is it different or how is it like from other environments you've been in, including building your own company? And how you think about not just securing the greater good, but securing the organization. So working at NSA was an honor and a privilege. Great workforce. You know, the president would would call them. President Bush said, you know, you're the soldiers of the intel community. You just get it done. And what I was so proud of is the fact that they were in this for the good of the nation. Um, When they were vilified, by Snowden and all that, the practical reality is they stepped in there. They saved our troops in Afghanistan and Iraq. They protected our country and our allies from terrorist attacks. They did their job. And I think having the opportunity to lead a group of people like that, military and civilian, what a great honor. They, you know, they have the technical talent to do the impossible. They can bring this information together. They can solve problems. They can help industry. They can help our government. They can help our allies. And they do that every day. And they do it without jumping up and saying, look at what we did. It's interesting. In talking with the deputy, Chris Inglis, at times, the comment was, you know, we could take great credit for it. But if we take credit for it publicly, it could impact our ability to continue to do that in the future. So we didn't, we didn't take credit for a lot of things. And I think that was good for the country. Probably not for NSA. I think where they are now, showing that they can share with industry and do their job quietly is a great place to be. So I really enjoyed my time at NSA. I think the partnerships we had with other intel agencies, CIA, FBI, and others was amazing and working with our allies. And, you know, knowing that we help save lives every day made it something to be really proud of. That's amazing that you were able to have, you know, most of us in our careers aren't going to have, you know, we, we, our jobs are impactful, but we're not going to have that type of experience that we can say our job helps save a country, right? It's incredible to me. Yeah. So in recent years, let's go, let's go to the, you know, kind of the, the elephant in the room. Look, in recent years, you know, with with the tools that were leaked from NSA, the adversaries have, have had, you know, a good time repurposing and using those. But I still think that the U.S. cyber warriors were better equipped. So how are those cyber warriors addressing the risk from our own cyber west weapons, but also addressing the risk just from all of the growth? And we're seeing substantial growth in R&D for, the, for cyber weapons, Right. So can you talk a little bit just how our cyber warriors think about those things and what they're proactively doing today? 
So there are um, groups now headed up by the administration to weigh, do we use a new exploiter or do we push it out to uh, industry? And when you say, do we use it, can that be used to help our nation uh, stop terrorist attacks, protect our soldier, sailors, airmen, and Marine around the world, protect our allies? So you actually have a really tough set of decisions. What do I give up? And what do I keep to help protect our nation? That's a really tough call. And then what we did when I was there, and I'm sure it still goes on, is if something is leaked or given up, we share that as quickly as possible with everybody so that they know that that's out there. Uh, uh, you can come up with a patch to resolve that vulnerability and get it out. That's the part of the future that I think we've got to get really good at. Ideally, if we could do this, Dan, here's where I would go. If we could ensure that the internet was protected 100% and we didn't have to worry about somebody getting in, we could be that good. It would hurt our collection, but it hurt everybody else's. We could secure it 100%. We should do it. The problem is we can't. So now you have to have um, good people making the best choices they can, working in an interagency process for the good of the country. And those are decision calls. You can't ever um, really think about what happens if somebody gives this up. So people that have leaked information, they should be um, put in front of a, I guess, a jury of their peers and uh, you know, face a trial and then let it fall where it may. I think those kinds of things, those people shouldn't be uh, hailed as heroes. Uh, what they should do is they should be held for what they are, people who are giving up our nation's secrets that could hurt our country, hurt our people in the field, and I think held accountable for that. We need to do that better. Interesting. So I know you've raised four children, I think. Four daughters, yep. How hard was it for you to keep secrets um, from them? And how hard was it, more importantly, for you said four daughters. Boy, how hard was it for them to keep secrets from you? We, you know, my wife, uh, we've been married for 40, is 46 years this year. Congratulations. Yeah, and we've known each other probably nine years beyond that. And my comment is I have a responsibility to do for the nation, and that's to maintain secrets. So. I would come home, I'd never talk about work. Uh, it was interesting. Um, when I was late, she goes, what's going on? My answer is nothing. And she goes, yeah, I'll just read about it in the paper. In two days, it'll be in the paper. Um, but I would never talk about it. Uh, and, you know, it's, a hard, it's hard to break that thought process. See, now that I'm out in the commercial sector, what did you do today? I'm very, you know, not tight-lipped, but I just don't talk about it. I think from my time at NSA and in the Intel community, you learn there are things that we need to do for the good of the nation. Just don't talk about it. And so you flip a switch, you're at work and then you're at home and don't uh, talk about what you're doing. Don't even try to beat around it. Just, you know, it's uh, work. And they ask what's going on. How's it going? Great. That's it. One word. Great. Can you elaborate on that? Really great. And I think that's the way the nation wants your military and your intelligence community to operate. You want them to keep those secrets to help ensure that we can bring back our folks 
and save our country and our allies. And that depends on being able to keep secrets. When you think about bringing all this data together to build a picture, the underlying framework and brain behind that is an expert system that will be fueled by machine learning and AI. Imagine the attackers in the future are gonna use artificial intelligence to attack our networks from hundreds of different command and control sites with thousands of different versions of malware to try to penetrate it. And they can push that on us faster than we can respond to it in a manual mode. So our defense is going to have to have an expert system with machine learning, with artificial intelligence. Think of that as a um, next generation AI, a computationally uh, complex system that will help us address those threats, combat those threats at network speed. The adversary is going to use AI to attack us. We're going to need AI to defend us. So the evolution of that in cyber is going to be hugely important for us. That That's fantastic. I, I do think that there is a lot of opportunity and a lot of risk, and it's one of those areas we need to see continued both investment, but also, to your point earlier, government collaboration with the private sector to drive those solutions in a way that they're going to be the most effective and fast. Exactly. So you've been the victim of identity threat. Um, Someone took, it looks like a $9,000 IRS refund in your name and used your identity to apply for credit cards. Talk about your personal habits and how you keep your devices from being hacked, but also any advice you can give our audience to prevent this from happening for them. So this happened while I was in government. It actually, when I was at NSA. And it's interesting because as a director of NSA, you can't say, well, I'll get these guys. I'll go, I'll go get them. You can't do that. You know that many in our government, their personal data was stolen, their name, their address, their social security number, and others, mine included. What had happened, ironically, is in January, I think it was 2014, I was doing the taxes to complete them and get them done on time. And I, I clicked on TurboTax, enter. And it said, you've already filed your claim. And I thought, I just pressed the button. I couldn't have filed the claim. So I pressed the button again and said, you've already filed your claim. So then we called up and I said, you know, something's not right here. It says I filed my claim, but I'm just pressing the button to push my claim in. And the guy goes, well, um, it shows here that you filed a claim for $9,000. And I thought, wow, I was going to have to pay $1,600. And I'm, this guy's getting back 9000 Maybe he should do my tax return. Um, uh, I actually then uh, said, well, that one's false, so stop it. So we actually caught that before he could actually get a check. Then uh, brought in the FBI. And it's their responsibility in the United States to take care of these. And they did a great job. The FBI field office out of Baltimore did an amazing job, caught the guy, and they went to prison. Now, having said that, the real issue that you bring up. So that was 2014. When that happened, what we did is we said, okay, so we've got to have a way of knowing when somebody's applying for a credit card in our name. We got LifeLock. And so there are two things that I would encourage people to do. One, get LifeLock. That tracks your credit history and things like somebody doing a new credit card or something like that. 
and they can immediately stop that. That's, that's the first and most important one. And the second is LastPass or some kind of uh, capability to have world-class passwords and a vault to keep them in. So do both of those. We do both of those. And I think what that does is it means anytime somebody says, I'm going to put a credit card in Alexander's name, when that hits, Life, uh, LifeLock gives us an alert. Is that us? We say no, they stop it. I think that's a great way to do it. We need things like that in the future to help all people do this. So people who are victims of, of loss, which I think now given the, the volume, everybody in the United States has lost their data somehow, uh, using something like that is really important. Yeah, I think that those are great tips. You know, when we talk to end users about using those type of tools, using multi-factor authentication, and also educating themselves on phishing attacks, right? Is there anything else you want to tell our audience as we sign off here? Well, I, I would. I think uh, a couple things. You know, we're going some, through some tough times as we talked about with the coronavirus. We have a great country. We are the ones who built the internet. We've done all these great things. And as we come out of the coronavirus, there are some lessons that we can learn on how we can operate in the future with all this going on. And we do that by working together as a country. In this regard, it's the same thing, whether it's cybersecurity working together for collective defense, working together for, to protect elderly and those who are at most risk, working together to protect the future economic welfare of our country. If we work this together, we will get past this. And when we come out of it, we'll be stronger. And so uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to all those who have suffered, all those who have lost loved ones during this crisis. And we hope that all the rest of those who are sick get better. Uh, so that's what I have in. Thank you, an honor and privilege to be here. I thank you so much for joining me, Ian. I want to echo those thoughts that I'm um, hoping everyone's families are safe and healthy and those that are, you know, ill um, come through this period of time and, and find their health again. Um, and I agree with you. We are, um, we are a great country and we will, we will weather this um, storm. So thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you making the time. Thanks, Ian. So um, I've known General Keith Alexander for a while. And we've served on some panels together, um, done some thought leadership work together. And I find his point of view to always be informed, to be refreshing, and to be fairly direct. So having him as a guest on my podcast, I knew would lead us to a conversation that was actually really impactful and meaningful. My takeaways from this episode were that that resonated with me again was the need to be transparent, the need to balance privacy and security, and the need to work together from a public-private sector, public-public sector, and private-private sector. If we do all of those things, we're going to have an advantage against the cyber attackers. I want to thank our audience for listening in and uh, join us next time. We're going to have a lot more coming up on Afternoon Cyber Tea. Thank you. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia, 
Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.